As I mentioned, we're going to take our cue this morning for our order of worship from the book of Nehemiah itself. In Nehemiah chapter 9, as you remember, the people spent a quarter of the day reading from the book of the law, and then they spent a quarter of the day in confession and worship. We tried that last week, and we're going to do it again uh, this week. There's a natural order to that, as I mentioned last week, to have our hearts and minds challenged by the teaching of Scripture, and then to have an opportunity uh, in song to express to God our response to Him and to His Word. Uh, Before we actually look at Nehemiah this morning, I do want to alert you to the fact that when we uh, finish our time of instruction this morning, I would like to have you share with the rest of the body here this morning some of the lessons that you have learned from the book of Nehemiah. If there's some lesson from this book that God in particular has impressed on your heart as we've studied through the book over these last several months, we'd like to hear from you so that we can be encouraged along with you at what God is teaching you. And if there's some need that the book of Nehemiah has made you aware of and you have experienced a desire to see God minister to you in some particular way because of what you've been exposed to in this book, uh, we'd like to hear from you as well. So uh, be thinking about that. Just plant that as a seed. And then when we finish our time of instruction, we'll hear from you about how God has ministered to us as a fellowship through this book. I think it's impossible to overestimate the impact that uh, one individual can have on the kingdom of God. One individual who's made himself available to God in mind and soul uh, and in spirit. If you look in the pages of the scripture, you see that men like Abraham and Moses and uh, Samson, David, Solomon, into the pages of the New Testament, obviously our Lord himself. And the Apostle Paul, who on one occasion stood alone for the gospel. Even Peter had deflected from the purity of the gospel. And Paul alone stood for the truth. If you move into church history, men like Augustine and Calvin and Swingler, the Reformers, and Adoniram Judson and and William Carey, men who single-handedly were able to change the course of the history of the kingdom of God. In some cases, the the history of entire civilizations. Uh, One individual alone can make a a difference as... uh, Howard Hendricks puts it, God plus one is a majority. Church history abundantly illustrates that. Martin Luther is a prime case in point when uh, Luther rediscovered in the scriptures that the truth that God justifies us, accepts us simply and entirely because we've placed faith in Christ apart from anything that we can do. He had to take on not only the, the emperor of the Roman Empire, the most powerful political figure in his time, But he had to take on the leader of the established church at that time, the most powerful religious figure of his day. And yet Luther, because God empowered him, sustained him, uh, was able to change the course of history of the kingdom of God. I think Nehemiah has a word for those of us in in this room that want to be individuals of impact like that, uh, who want to be people who make a difference in the lives of people around us, in your neighborhoods, Uh, in your offices, in the marketplace. If you want to be an individual who makes a distinctive impact, who leaves a mark on the people around you, then I think Nehemiah is a man that repays careful study. This morning what I want to do with you is simply review briefly the book of Nehemiah and identify what I think are seven key characteristics that mark Nehemiah as a leader and as a man of influence, as a man who was able to stand above the crowd and Uh, leave a mark on on his time. 
I believe if we, by God's grace, by His transforming power, will become people who are characterized by these same things, that the lives of people around us will never, ever be the same. We will leave an impact on people that will be, be unforgettable. The first thing that comes to my attention as you open to Nehemiah, and I will refer occasionally to various passages in this book, the first thing that really grabs my attention as I read the book of Nehemiah is in verse 4, where it says, When it came about that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, the words that Nehemiah is talking about are the report that he'd gotten in verse 3, that the walls of the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed, in fact, had been lying in disrepair for 140 years, and that the people of God were in distress. And when Nehemiah heard this, that God's people were in distress, it bothered him. It bothered him so much that he spent days weeping and mourning and fasting. And this is the first mark in Nehemiah's life, the first mark of a person of impact, is that we must be people of compassion, that the condition of the people around us must matter to us. It must make a difference to us how the people around us are doing. One of the things that has often uh, destroyed the ministry of very gifted men, sometimes brilliant men and very gifted teachers and expositors of the word, persuasive and eloquent and powerful, is that over time people begin to realize that these men really do not care about them. They're gifted teachers of the word, but there's a coldness and an indifference in their heart to people. And gradually the brilliance begins to tarnish and the effectiveness begins uh, to diminish because they lack the compassion that enables them to truly care for people. I think this is the most important single thing for us to have in the relationships with people in our office, particularly with those that do not yet know the Lord. It's just as important that we love them, have compassion for them, be concerned for them, hurt when they hurt, rejoice when they rejoice, as it is that we share the gospel. This compassion that we demonstrate for them is what creates the climate in which the gospel can be heard and responded to. I have to confess that this area of compassion has been a difficult one for me in my own life. When Debbie and I were going through uh, premarital counseling, we uh, uh, took a temperament analysis profile. One of the categories of character or temperament that's profiled in this particular analysis is uh, the personality profile of sympathy versus indifference. The desirable thing, obviously, is to be a sympathetic person. And if you are a sympathetic person by nature, then your graph will score in the dark gray area on this chart. If you are slightly less sympathetic, you will grade out in the lighter shaded gray area. And the legend tells you that improvement is uh, desirable. Oh, no, that you're acceptable. You're acceptable if you're in this lighter shaded gray. If you are still less sympathetic... Uh, you will grade out in a very light shaded area, and uh, you are told that improvement is considered desirable. If you score where I did, which was down in the white, out of the gray altogether, barely budged the needle on the chart, you are told that improvement is urgent. And uh, if you'd like to know whether improvement is urgent in my case, you simply need to talk to my wife at your uh, convenience. But marriage has been a uh, terrific learning tool for me as God has brought to my attention the need to become a more sympathetic and caring, compassionate uh, individual. 
And one of the things that motivates me to continue to seek God's face to become this kind of person who truly cares about people is realizing in the lives of men like Nehemiah how important this is in uh, leaving a mark in the body of Christ. One of the marks of maturity that I see in Paul's life was that his own emotional condition was determined in large measure by the spiritual condition of people around him. If you read the book of 2 Corinthians, for instance, uh, Paul will say things like, I wrote this letter to you out of anguish and sorrow of heart and with many tears. And the reason is that the Corinthians were deflecting from, from God. Uh, they, uh, they were struggling in their walk with God. And this created anguish for Paul. His heart was broken over their spiritual condition. If you flip over a few pages and read the letters to the Thessalonians, you detect a completely different spirit. He says, you are my joy. You are my crown. In you I rejoice and I exult because they were walking and growing with God. And that's one of the marks of maturity that God wants to develop in each of us is to reach the point where our own emotional condition, our level of joy or happiness or anxiety is more and more a function of the spiritual condition of people around us and less and less a function of our own particular circumstances. Now what this means is in Nehemiah's case is that everything he did in this book was done out of his compassionate response to this need that he observed. Uh, He didn't do these things uh, to build a monument for himself, to uh, uh, get applause and headlines in the Jerusalem Post or get a book named after him in the Bible. He did this simply because there was a need to be met, and in his compassion, he wanted to do something about it. And this is what protects our motives. This is what keeps. Uh, this is what kept Nehemiah's motives uh, pure: is that he wasn't doing it to stroke his own ego, to receive attention or recognition, but to simply minister to people who had a need. Now, the second thing I observe about Nehemiah: not only was he a man of compassion, but he was a man of prayer. If you look in verse four there in chapter one. He said, after he wept and mourned, that I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And notice the verb tense there, I was praying, referring to a continual kind of of activity. And he was patient in prayer. Remember by looking at verse 1 of chapter 1 that Nehemiah found out about the condition of Jerusalem in the month Kislev, roughly December. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 1, you'll realize that nothing happened in response to his prayer until the month Nisan, four months later, early in April. But if you look at verse 11 of chapter 1, what Nehemiah says in his prayer, which he started praying in Kislev in December, look at the end of his prayer. Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. So I want to reconstruct in your minds what Nehemiah's prayer life was like at this point. He becomes burdened by this need. He wants to do something about it. And so he begins praying. He, sa- he prays on December 1st, Lord, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. December 1 comes and goes, nothing happens. Nada, zip. So he prays the same thing on December 2. Lord, grant your servant success today. December 2 comes and goes, nothing. He prays the same thing on December 3rd. Lord, grant your servant success today. And again, nothing happens. And this went on for four months where Nehemiah had no evidence that the Lord was hearing or responding to his prayer. And then suddenly, after four months, the door was opened and Nehemiah was able to to walk through it. 
I think this is a, a secret to Nehemiah's effectiveness, is his patient prayer. If you read carefully through the book, you'll see 19 different references, uh, occurrences of prayer in Nehemiah's leadership throughout this book. remember once when I was working at the Marriott in our first year of marriage, I was working as a waiter there, and I was the only Christian on my particular shift, and I began to develop a desire to share the gospel with the people that I worked with. And I'd been there for several weeks, going into months, and nothing had happened. And I was beginning to feel a little guilty about this and uh, feeling I needed boldness or something of this nature. And I remember being struck by Paul's words in Colossians 4, Be, Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says, so that God may open to us a door for the word. And I realized that's the one thing I hadn't been doing, is devoting myself to prayer. I've been reviewing my four law booklets and so forth, but I hadn't been devoting myself to prayer. And so I began to do that and pray daily that God would give me an opportunity to share my faith with the people I worked with. Well, then several weeks after this, uh, one morning we were all in this little alcove, the whole crew that I worked with, and we were preparing table settings for the lunch uh, shift. And uh, one of the girls I worked with asked me a question about my faith. Uh, They knew that I was a Bible thumper and all that kind of thing. And this was the first time anybody had asked me a question about my faith. And uh, just when Donna asked me that question, every other conversation in this little alcove stopped as if uh, on cue. And everyone that I worked with uh, listened in and began to participate in this discussion about the gospel. And I had an opportunity for 15 or 20 minutes to share the gospel as clearly as as I know how to do with everybody I worked with uh, listening, a situation I couldn't possibly have dreamed up or worked out uh, in a million years. So God works in response to patient prayer. And this is true, by the way, not only in ministry, but in, in areas of personal life. If you are struggling with some sin that has a grip on you or some habit that you cannot uh, seem to break, the proper response is patient prayer. Lord, grant your servant success today. And if that doesn't work, the next day, Lord, grant your servant success today. And continue to pray and trust in the power of God to give you release. I've talked just this past week uh, with a couple of friends of mine, both of whom experienced the touch of the hand of God to give them release and deliverance in areas of life in which they had prayed for months and sometimes even years. But they never gave up trusting that God was the one who would uh, produce victory. I was in Marie Callender's last night, and someone had... uh, scratched on the paper towel dispenser this little bit of graffiti i do not recommend this by the way as a method of evangelism but the uh, the little uh, motto that had been scrawled on this uh, dispenser was was this uh, please and it was underlined please look to jesus he is the only answer and my first reaction was that there's some a religious nut who is loose in the restaurants of boise Uh, But as I thought about it a little further, I realized that uh, regardless of the uh, courtesy of what had been done, that is exactly the case. Please look to Jesus. He is the only answer. If there's some difficulty that you're wrestling with or some sin that is gripping you or some relationship that you just can't seem to work out or to fix, Jesus is the only answer. Continue to seek his face until he responds and works in your behalf. That's a lesson that Nehemiah had learned. Nehemiah, you realize, needed uh, a work of God in the heart of the king of the entire world in order to do anything about this need. 
Artaxerxes was the most powerful man in the world, but Nehemiah knew that he was small change compared to the God of heaven, and so he never ceased to pray. As Hudson Taylor uh, put it, it is possible uh, to move men through God by prayer alone. And that's how Nehemiah changed the heart of Artaxerxes, through prayer alone. And he'd learned this great lesson that Taylor spoke so well, that it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Uh, And that's true for you. If there's some uh, difficult person in your life that will not move, that will not budge, uh, a wife or a husband or an employee or a boss, uh, God is able to move men through prayer alone. So continue to persist in prayer as Nehemiah did. As Chuck Swindoll pointed out, Nehemiah was a leader from the knees up. Now, the third characteristic that I see in Nehemiah is that not only did he pray, but he planned. He prayed that God would give him an opportunity to do something about this need in Jerusalem. Nothing happened for four months, but during that time, a plan was forming in Nehemiah's mind. And you remember in chapter 2, when Artaxerxes noticed that Nehemiah was particularly bummed out one day in his presence, he asked him, what's the matter? And Nehemiah had an opportunity to explain to him the condition in Jerusalem and what he wanted to do about it. And Artaxerxes said, okay, well, what do you want? What would you like from me? And Nehemiah was ready with a response. And he ticked off a list of things he asked Artaxerxes to do for him. Letters of safe conduct through hostile territories and a requisition slip for lumber uh, when he got there. So he had a plan in place and he was simply waiting for God to open the door to implement it. And I think it's the blend of these two that made Nehemiah successful in this book. It's the blend of prayer and planning that produced a wall. If Nehemiah had prayed and hadn't planned, be no wall. If he'd prayed and God had opened Artaxerxes' heart and Nehemiah didn't have a list of things to ask the king, nothing would have happened. But if Nehemiah had planned and not prayed, again, there would be no wall. He would have had a beautiful plan and no open door to implement it. So it's the blend of the two that produces results in the Christian life. This is true for those of you that teach the Scriptures. You're aware that that preparing to teach uh, takes hard, uh, diligent work, and there's an element of planning and work that's indispensable to effective teaching ministry. But all of you have learned that unless the Spirit gives wings to those words, uh, there's no fruit falls on on deaf ears and is, uh, falls fruitless to the ground. So it's the blend of prayer and planning that made Nehemiah successful. And you remember, as Chris pointed out so well, that his plans were flexible. Nehemiah was willing to adjust them as circumstances uh, changed. When he encountered opposition, remember several times in the course of one chapter, he modified his plan. He began by posting men in the most exposed portions of the wall. As the opposition increased, he grouped them together instead by families so that men would be motivated to protect their wives and their children. And when the opposition increased further, he modified his plan one more time. He put a a weapon in each man's hand and a trowel in the other so that they could continue to work but were on a constant state of alert and readiness for any attack from the enemy. There was a flexibility there in Nehemiah's planning that was important. And this is where I see many churches uh, today uh, foundering, uh, that they're, they're unwilling to adjust and, and flex as the Spirit changes needs and circumstances. This, this is what Jesus was talking about in Luke 5 when he talked about the wine and the wineskins. Remember that? Uh, 
Jesus said, if you put new wine into old wineskins, as the new wine continues to ferment and as gases form, the old wineskin will not be strong enough to contain that pressure. The wineskin will burst and you will lose both the wine and the wineskin. So Jesus says it's a fact of life that new wine must be put into new wineskins, must be prepared to alter the forms of worship and ministry as the Spirit pours new wine into our life as a body. Uh, but, but many Christians, and we can be guilty of this at Cole just like anyone else can, are unwilling to respond uh, to this. As Bob Smith, who was on the staff at Peninsula Bible Church, uh, used to put it, the seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. Uh, but Jesus said new wine needs to go into new wineskins. This is something we as elders and staff are concerned about here, that we as a fellowship maintain a constant openness to the work of the Spirit and a willingness to adapt and change and grow and develop new wineskins and, and pitch out old wineskins as the Spirit does new things in our fellowship. So Nehemiah prayed and he planned. A fourth thing I see in Nehemiah is that he was able to enlist the aid of God's people. He didn't try to do the whole thing uh, himself. In chapter 3, you remember that graphic picture as David went through it with us of, of, of the rich working shoulder to shoulder with the poor, of the nobles working alongside commoners, of masters working alongside slaves, section by section, uh, shoulder to shoulder, doing the work of God. Nehemiah was able to mobilize them and, and motivate them to bring all of the resources of God's people to the task. And that's another mark of an effective leader in the body, is that he is able to tap into, to motivate, and to equip uh, all of God's people to help him accomplish the work of God. Uh, oftentimes, stress and burnout in, in ministry comes from a believer in, in good intentions trying to carry the load of the ministry uh, on his own shoulders instead of learning how to work alongside other believers and bring them alongside. I think it's a good question to ask ourselves repeatedly, how, how well do I mesh with God's people in ministry situations? Am I able to work alongside them as a team member? Uh, or, or am I someone who creates friction everywhere I go and puts people off and kind of rubs them uh, the wrong way and constantly leave behind little tensions as I, as I move through? This ability to work alongside, to mobilize God's people is an important quality. Jesus put it this way, He who is with me gathers. He who is not with me scatters. If we are walking with Jesus, we will gather people. We will draw them around us and draw them into the, to the work of God. If we are not walking with Jesus, our effect will be to scatter people and to drive them from us and from each other. There's a fifth quality that I see in Nehemiah that surfaced in our studies together, and that is the quality of persistence. That uh, Nehemiah stayed with the task despite the opposition and despite the resistance that he encountered. As you remember, he got opposition from without, from Sanballat and Tobiah, who threatened him with physical force, and when that didn't work, resorted to subterfuge and to uh, crafty stratagems to dissuade him from the task. He encountered resistance from within as he discovered Jews who were 
selling fellow Jews into slavery and who were charging fellow Jews interest and taking advantage of their poverty. But despite the obstacles that Nehemiah encountered, he stayed with the task and saw it through to the end. I think that's an important quality for us to develop in the ministries that God has called you to. Perhaps you're in a ministry situation right now where the obstacles seem to be great and the hurdles seem to be high. You may be overwhelmed with the uh, task that seems to lie in front of you, and the, and the temptation is strong to pitch it in, to bail out, uh, to quit, and to say it's just not, uh, not worth it. Those of you that are going to the Philippines and New Guinea this summer may have hit your mid-wall uh, crisis where the obstacles that are in your way seem to be too great. Or if you're working in the twos and threes, as I've heard lately, the hurdles seem to be humongous and the temptation strong to just pitch it in and say, let's let someone else worry about that. Uh, but Nehemiah encountered those same obstacles and he stayed right with it. Persistence marked him as a leader. Children are a, a great demonstration of this kind of uh, persistence. Nancy Edwards told me this last week that uh, her three-year-old son, Matthew, came into the kitchen one night when she was preparing dinner and asked for a cookie. And Nancy uh, said simply, no, I'm fixing dinner. You can't have a cookie. And uh, Matthew uh, asked again. Again, Nancy said no. He rephrased the question and asked again. And again, she said no. And this dialogue went on for several minutes. And uh, finally, Nancy looked at him right in the eye and said, Matthew, read my lips. No. And Matthew, startled for a moment, and left the kitchen, trotted into the bathroom, clambered up on the little ladder, and looked into the mirror. And Nancy could hear him working in there. And he came back into the kitchen and said, Mom, read my lips. Yes. <laughs> now that is persistence. No matter how great the obstacle, no matter how intense the resistance, you stay with the task, stay with the goal. Now, the sixth thing that I see in Nehemiah is his ability to confront other believers with their sin and his willingness to face problems head on and not to skirt them, not to hope that they'll go away or that they'll get better all by themselves, but to, as Chuck Swindoll says, to grab them uh, by the throat. Uh, I think our tendency when we run into problems in our families or in, in business is to, is to turn, is to look away and hope that they'll sort of fix themselves as time passes. But Nehemiah knew that that, that never happens, that things simply get worse if they don't get attention. So he was willing to face into these problems and in particular willing to deal with God's people when they were tolerating sin in their own lives. This was true in chapter 5, remember. He had to go up against the heavy wallets in the community, the nobles, the people that were financing this project, and say to them, look, you are, you're buying Jewish slaves, and that's verboten, and you're charging interest to, to poverty-stricken Jews, and that's wrong. And he held a great assembly against them. He was willing to forfeit the entire project in order to preserve righteousness in that, in that fellowship. In chapter 13, as we looked last week, uh, we see uh, Nehemiah repeatedly admonishing, rebuking, uh, warning, contending, exhorting solemnly as he dealt with sin in the midst of the fellowship. This is another character characteristic that we, by God's grace, must learn to develop. If we see brothers and sisters around us who are tolerating sin, to gently and yet firmly go to them and point out their behavior 
uh, in the light of the scriptures and challenge them to respond and to conform their behavior to the standards of scripture. The church is weak in this area today. A close friend of mine was let go from a ministry position just this last year because the leadership in his church did not have the courage to face sin in the midst of the of the body. And rather than tackle this problem head on and deal with it and clean the leaven out of the out of the fellowship, it was much easier to let my friend go and, and preserve peace. So we must develop the ability to confront, to face problems head on. The last thing I observe about Nehemiah is that he recognized his own limitations. Flip over to chapter 8 just for a moment. This will be the last uh, reference that I want to consult this morning. By chapter 7, Nehemiah had completed the construction of the wall. And he'd been the main man to make things happen. But Nehemiah realized that the people needed not just a fortified city, but a spiritual renewal. And look in the early verses in chapter 8 and see the name that suddenly becomes the prominent one. Verse 1, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. Verse 2, then Ezra the priest brought the law. Verse 3, he, Ezra, read from it before the square. Verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Nehemiah realized that there were others that were more gifted than he was to carry on this work that needed to be done. And he was willing to step aside and allow others with greater gifts than he had to occupy center stage and to get the attention and the limelight and the applause and the attention of people without any jealousy or bitterness on his part. See this uh, occasionally in Christian organizations, started perhaps by a man of great vision, sees a need and wants to do something to meet it. And he will begin a ministry or an organization which is designed to to minister to this need. Uh, And yet he fails to realize often that there are others, once this ministry has been started, who are more gifted than he to nurture it and develop it and see it through. Nehemiah didn't make that mistake. He knew what his limitations were. He knew what he had been gifted to do and not gifted to do. And he didn't try to do the things that God had not equipped him to do. He allowed others to minister in in his place in that way. So these are the seven things that I see in Nehemiah just as a quick review of the book. He was a man of compassion. He was a man of patient prayer. A man who learned to blend prayer with careful planning. Uh, He was a man who knew how to utilize the resources of God's people. He knew how to persist despite resistance. Uh, He knew how to confront problems and face them head on. And he knew how to recognize his own limitations and not do what God had not equipped him and outfitted him to do. Uh, And he left a tremendous mark in his time. You know, the thing I think that is greatest about Nehemiah, what I really appreciate about him, is that he was a layman. He was an ordinary garden variety type guy. He was a wine taster before he did this. He had never been to seminary in his whole life, uh, couldn't parse a Greek verb to save his life. And yet he's the man that God raised up to do this work for God's people. Just an ordinary guy, uh, just like you and me. And I think by God's grace, as we tap into his life at work in us, uh, we can be these kind of people. 
Now, probably all of us, if we look through this list, I know I feel that I fall far short when I see this. I'm not this kind of person most of the time. I'm impatient in prayer. I'm indifferent with people. And it seems like I fall far short of Nehemiah's standard. But I want to be like that, and I think all of us in this room do. One of the things that strikes me about the people of Israel at this time is how responsive they were. They didn't have a lot of stay power at this point. But every time they were challenged or confronted with the truth, they responded. Nehemiah blows into town and says, let's build a wall. And they said, hey, great, when do we start? And Nehemiah says, look, you guys got to quit buying Jewish slaves and quit charging interest. And say, yeah, you're right. Let's cut it out today. Let's quit. They read from the book of the law that they need to preserve the Sabbath and put foreign wives away and not neglect the house of the God, house of God. And they said, ah, oh, that's right. We've got to do it. And let's, let's even put it in writing so we'll be sure to, to take it seriously. And when they deflected from that, Nehemiah came back and had to, had to dress them down again for the same things. And they responded. They said, yes, uh, you're right. Put my hair back and, and we'll, we'll do it. But every time they responded to the directions that they got from Nehemiah and from, from the scriptures and from God. And if that's your heart today, if, you're, if you look at the profile of a leader that we've seen in Nehemiah and your heart says, Lord, make me into that kind of a man. That's what counts. It's not where we're at. Uh, it's where we're going. And so together, I would like us to trust God to make each of us individually into the kind of people that will that leave a mark in our community, in our little neighborhoods, in the offices in which we work, so that people will be different because, because we've been there.